my dear friend, to give you any exact account of a scheme which I always drive as fast as possible out of my head, because I never think of it without a very painful degree of confusion. However, I will answer your questions as well as I am able. First, in regard to the size of the volume, I apprehend it may make a pamphlet of. What value the readers may guess, but about the price of one shilling or 18 pence at farthest? Next, as to additions to the manuscripts you have seen, there will be absolutely none. I never, I believe, writ anything but what you have seen, and I am very incapable of writing anything now. Indeed, if I was not, I have no idea of sitting down and writing verses merely by way of putting them into a book. Indeed, I am neither so stupid nor so ingrateful as to be insensible to the honor which has done me on this occasion, but I find all the encouragement that has been given me too weak to overcome my own diffidence and reluctance. However, I have promised Mrs. Montague that if this scheme is not disapproved of either by my father or my friends at Lambeth, that I will give up my own scruples. If after you've been so good as to mention it to his grace, no objection come from you, I will write to Mr. Rivington that he may speak to Mrs. Richardson about printing them directly. In this 1761 letter from Elizabeth Carter to Catherine Talbot, Carter discusses arranging the publication of her 1762 poetry collection, Poems on Several Occasions, an octavo volume of 104 pages dedicated to the Earl of Bath. Both Carter and Talbot were associated with a group known to posterity as the Blue Stockings, who, beginning in the 1750s, hosted informal gatherings devoted to intellectual conversation. These gatherings played a vital role in encouraging women's intellectual lives, and in later decades, prominent writers, including Frances Burney and Hannah Moore, would have strong connections to this group. Despite the prominence of the Blue Stockings, they did not necessarily or frequently publish their writing. As Carter's letter indicates, she only published her poems at the urging of friends and expresses a reluctance to discuss the prospect. Her addressee, Catherine Talbot, would remain largely unpublished until after her death, despite being widely respected as a lady of wit. Instead, much of their writing was circulated in manuscript, often in the form of letters. However, the early blue stockings did not eschew publication entirely, and much can be gleaned about their intellectual commitments, relationships, and manuscript practices from their strategic uses of print. Hello, and welcome to the WPHP Monthly Mercury, the podcast for the Women's Print History Project. The WPHP is a bibliographic database that collects information about women and book production during the 18th and 19th centuries. My name is Kate Moffat. And I'm Candace Sharon. And we are longtime editors of the WPHP and the hosts of this podcast. On the third Wednesday of every month, we'll introduce you to anecdotes, puzzles, and problems related to recovering evidence of women's involvement in print. here at the WPHP occasionally haunted by the fact that our database only accounts for women's writing that appeared in print, not manuscript. But print and manuscript are not mutually exclusive, as the Blue Stockings demonstrate. Friendships formed at informal gatherings and through letters are reflected in print publications through dedications and subscribers lists. The WPHP's bibliographic data can provide evidence of, or point us towards, what exists beyond the bounds of print, or how the printed works included in the WPHP can help inform what we see existing in manuscript. To help us sort through our questions and analyze some of our findings, we're joined for this episode by Dr. Betty Schellenberg. Betty Schellenberg is a professor of English at Simon Fraser University. Her interests in authorship, the blue stocking movement, and interfaces between the print trade and scribal networks inform her publications, which include Literary Coteries and the Making of Modern Print Culture in 2016, The Professionalization of Women Writers in 18th Century Britain in 2005, and Reconsidering the Blue Stockings, co-edited with Nicole Pohl in 2003. She is currently researching the 18th century manuscript poetry miscellany and editing Elizabeth Montague's correspondence with the Duchess of Portland for the Elizabeth Montague Correspondence Online Digital Project. And like Elizabeth Carter, she loves long-distance walking, although Samuel Johnson would not have complimented her on her talents at sewing shirts and making puddings. So first, 
first off, thank you so much for joining us on this episode, Betty. We're very excited to talk about the blue stockings with you and hear some more of your expertise on this subject. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm uh, always thrilled to talk blue stockings. And I actually, I think I discover more about them in a way every time I try to articulate this odd sort of (laughs) phenomenon. So it's a great opportunity. Thank you. To warm us up, uh, we just want to start by chatting a little bit about how the blue stockings weren't a particularly formal society, which raises a lot of questions about how we establish who was and who wasn't a blue stocking um, and how someone might join the blue stockings or come to be affiliated with them. How do you navigate that kind of um, tension between them being a a recognized phenomenon, as you said, and um, an informal group that shifted and changed over time? Yes. Um, Yeah, it is really important to remember and know that the Blue Stockings weren't a club, like that were, you know, where people were voted in to membership and so on. They were kind of like the salons in French, if people are familiar with that at all. But a loose social network of overlapping circles and um, that only accidentally came to be called Blue Stockings when they started making jokes about having a, a blue evening or the bar blue getting together or uh, we were very blue last <laughs> night and what they <laughs> meant by it, it was a term okay this is a story that's often told but just in case listeners haven't heard it it seems to have originated with Benjamin Stillingfleet a not very well off philosopher and mathematician who was either known for showing up at social gatherings in his um, sort of coarse blue wool stockings rather than his finely knitted silk stockings. And so the expression started to be, well, just come in your blue stockings. (laughs) Don't worry about dressing up. So so that actually tells us something important, I guess, about the group, which was that there was an element of informality to it, nothing like what we in our time would consider informality where you know sort of hey and walk in the door with a pizza it was you know everything was much more formal but but you didn't have to necessarily have a letter of introduction you didn't have to be of a certain social class so there was a kind of a radical radical informality to it and a chance to cross social lines that tended to be very strict at the time. So you could be relatively poor, you could be somebody who was interesting simply because what of what you had studied and, and, and read and your intelligence or your artistic accomplishments. You didn't have to be a member of the social elite. So um, I think I've gotten quite a far away from the original question, but it was, uh, how do you know who's a blue stocking? Well, you don't really accept that they hung out <laughs> with other people who were called blue stockings. And there were kind of three basic nodes in the first generation. I guess we're probably going to talk about generations yet, but there, there were three main female hostesses, Elizabeth Montague, Frances Boscawen, the wife of an admiral, and Elizabeth V.C., who was um, the wife of an Irish MP. So she spent her time between Ireland and England. And they were sort of the famous hostesses who had these gatherings that came to be associated with, with the blues. We know that you've recently discovered like a new collection of manuscript poems by a woman named Sarah Wilmot, who was associated with the blue stockings. And we wanted to hear a little bit more about how you identified the author and the fact that she was affiliated with the blue stockings, which, as you say, was kind of like, it's something you kind of have to puzzle through, right? There's no like roster that you can just go through. Mm-hmm. Right. And even Blue Stocking scholars hadn't really paid any attention to her name. Sarah Wilmot was the wife of a barrister who lived uh, in southern England in Farnborough in Hampshire. And when I had the opportunity to hold a fellowship at the Chawton House Library, which is a library dedicated to 18th and 19th century women's writing, it's located in the house, the home of uh, Jane Austen's brother, Chawton House in Hampshire. 
and in the village of Chawton, where Jane Austen's house is as well. So I had the opportunity to have a fellowship in that library, and I was given a folder uh, containing three uh, small, soft-cover notebooks full of poetry, supposedly by Sarah Wilmot. And nobody knew anything about this Sarah Wilmot, but just as I started to read the poems, I came, I started coming across names like... Montague and Carter and Pitt and I thought whoa wait a minute I know those people I hang out with them all the time intellectually so I had to kind of try to piece together what this connection might be so it actually came through the poetry so there were a number of poems that were referencing uh, these key blue stocking figures or addressed to them and there was one that sort of went through this whole list of learned and famous women and ended up at Montague as the pinnacle of uh, of Parnassus, you know, the, the, the mountain of the poets. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, she obviously wrote that poem to send to Montague. Like, they had to have been friends or acquaintances. There, were ga- there was a poem talking about a chess match between... Uh, some of them, like Montague and Carter and Pitt and, and this other woman. Yeah, so so there's an example of somebody who you wouldn't find on a roster, but who is in some way obviously part of this network, but even ha- had escaped the eye, I guess, of, of historians of blue stockings who have been quite active in the last three decades or so trying to put together this phenomenon and figure out what these social networks uh, were about. But then when I went back and con- consulted with other colleagues who have uh, examined the blue stocking letters, we did find references oh. to Mrs. Wilmot mm. borrowing books from uh, Elizabeth and her sister or stopping by for dinner when taking her son to Eton after a holiday and things like that. So, And she's much tighter in uh, the circles of David Garrick, the, the um, famous theatre manager and, and actor, who was also is also often considered a blue stocking. So it's all overlapping circles. Everyone knows everybody else. Sometimes they write letters, they have dinner, they borrow books. But you have to piece together that social network, which is a fascinating kind of research to do. So out of curiosity, are there any surviving letters either from Sarah Wilmot or to Sarah Wilmot to any of these other sort of key figures that you've identified or that you're aware of? I am trying to pursue that, um, which is a difficult thing to do in the time of COVID-19 <laughs> especially. But there are parish church records for the Farnborough Church. that, And some um, amateur historian of the community, I guess, has put together a kind of a fact sheet about the 18th century in that church. Mm-hmm. And the Wilmots, uh, Henry Wilmot was kind of the chief small landowner in that area so he was kind of the chief patron if you will of that little parish church and so um there's there are family monuments there which helps with all the dates somebody's put those online but there are also there's a reference to a poem that david garrick wrote about the wilmot's cat and there's also yeah and 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 it says also that there's a letter from hannah moore to David Garrick, they were very close friends, saying, written when she was staying at the Wilmots, written to Garrick. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to be able to track those documents <laughs> down. But yeah. in that poetry notebook that started the whole thing, there is actually a poem that Mrs. Wilmot has written to David Garrick, thanking him for an invitation to come celebrate their wedding anniversary at a party. So there's a poem to Garrick and there's a poem from Garrick as well. Again, it's more not direct correspondence Mm -hmm. between, at this point, Mrs. Wilmot and the Blue Stockings, but quite a lot of circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Oh, wow. I love it. (laughs) So Sarah Wilmot's poetry exists in manuscript, but um, our database, the WPHP, has a focus on print. So we want to talk a little bit about that relationship between sort of like a printed record and a manuscript record. You open literary coteries in the making of modern print culture with a reflection on how your interest in the way professional authors networked led you to look more closely at the manuscript cultures embedded in the coteries they operated within. So we were wondering if you could talk a little bit more about 
some of the ways that we can find evidence of um, the relationships embedded in coteries, such as the blue stockings and the manuscript culture that they kind of created in print and printed documents. If, if it's okay, I think I'm actually going to back up just a bit from that question and say that I think one of the hardest or the most challenging issues of perspective when you're studying blue stocking culture is to realize how print was not everything for them. Because like you said, so like this fabulous women's print history database is turning up all this interesting material about women and their connections. But from the other perspective, from the perspective of being a blue stocking, it was all about sociability. It was all about conversation and letters, really. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so when they did move into print, that was kind of an exceptional thing. And I think I would say it was always a project that had a kind of purpose. Like here, I'm going to write, I've written letters on the improvement of the mind. Mm -hmm. And this is something that would be great for girls' education. Right. Or I've written this essay on the genius of Shakespeare. And I'm going to defend Mm -hmm. Shakespeare against Voltaire. So there's always a a moral or social (laughs) purpose or something to going big. But um, most of the time, the blue stockings felt they were doing their social work through conversation and letter writing. And they achieved a lot of fame through those two things. You could, in those days, be a brilliant conversationalist or a great letter writer, and people would copy your letters and circulate them. So you didn't necessarily feel there was any point to printing. So that is my little preamble (laughs) to actually answering your good question about what do you see in print? I have tended to find the evidence of blue stocking collaboration and networking in the paratexts of, of printed works. So in the prefaces and the dedications and so on. So uh, letters of, uh, on the improvement of the mind, which I just mentioned, it's published, I think, in 1772 by Hester Chapone, a, a very well-educated, intelligent woman who uh, was quite in, uh, had very limited means. She wasn't absolutely poor, but struggling to hold on to the middle class, basically by her fingernails. And uh, so she she uh, she was proud. But Elizabeth Montague was really good at forming friendships with women who were uh, p- much poorer than her but who had intellectual gifts and education. So she would set up this kind of dynamic. You can see her doing it in the letters where she's saying, um, you know, uh, you have so much to offer me. Like she really builds them up and makes them feel like there's an exchange here, right? So even if you're staying in my house or traveling with me on my credit card, I'm gaining so I'm the gainer from this. And she, she, I think she was sincere in a lot of ways. That's how she kind of got her education. So um, she really encouraged Hester Chapone to publish this book. So when you read the preface of the book, you see uh, Hester mentioning that it's dedicated to Montague and saying that it Montague really encouraged her to publish this. Montague edited it, gave her advice. I believe it's, pub- I'm trying to remember, sorry, if this one is published by subscription or not, but often Montague would really push subscriptions with her friends. So you look at the lists of people at the beginning of the, pu- mm. of the work. So we tend to read dedications and prefaces as though they're pro forma. And of course you compliment the person because Mm -hmm. you're dedicating to them uh, and there's something (laughs) in it for you. And of course that's to a degree true, but I think those phrases when Chapone says, you know, you helped me edit this, you, you, um, you encouraged it, this, and then you can go to Montague's letters and you can see her sending letters to people saying, you know, make sure you buy this book. It's going to be good. Um, make sure you support Mrs. Chapone. She's very deserving. So you see in the correspondence the background work that went on behind those hints in in print. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you note uh, print as secondary to the Blue Stockings and kind of their literary project, um, because I think now the way we tend to encounter them is through the works that they printed. So my first 
personally, my first um, encounter mm-hmm. with the blue stockings was reading Millennium Hall by Sarah Scott, which is a novel. Um, but as you know, <laughs> that's a, not the, the norm for them, publication. Because Millennium Hall is um, a novel that first introduced me to the blue stockings, it has a kind of like special place in my heart. So we were, we were doing a little bit of digging around Millennium Hall and perhaps other printed texts of the Blue Stockings in the WPHP. And um, we noticed that in the sort of first generation, um, loosely defined Blue Stockings, there was not a great deal of fiction published. Whereas sort of later people who came to be affiliated with the Blue Stockings, like Francis Burney and like Clara Reeve, really made their their reputations as novelists. And in the case of Frances Burney, kind of came to join the Blue Stockings through her published work. So we were wondering if you um, could explain to us why why this shift happened. Why weren't more early Blue Stockings novel writers and mm-hmm. what changed? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think <laughs> it's about what happened around them to a large degree in terms of the status of the novel. So Mm. when uh, mid-century women, when the blue stocking women read novels, there's this interesting sort of double thing. They treat novels as though they're mindless, not quite trash, but it's just, it's fluffy. It's the kind of thing you look for, you know, when you sit down, uh, we would sit down and watch a few episodes of, of a comedy on Netflix. You know, and something We all need something to relax ourselves, to, to um, relieve stress and things. So they will talk about reading novels. They'll read them. They'll read novels by Charlotte Lennox or Sarah Fielding while their hair is being dressed or, you know, a woman will read it to her mother as they're walking in the garden or when they're doing these long coach journeys that take forever and, you know, must have been excruciatingly bumpy and boring. <laughs> and um, they, they read to each other, right? So, so novels often take that kind of place and they will say they've enjoyed them, but it's a silly thing and, you know, something that will occupy for, for a few hours. So the blue stockings, I think, tended to see themselves about as about something more serious you know they they had uh bigger fish to fry so to speak (laughs) and and they also tended to see novels as being published to make money Mm -hmm. so if you didn't have to make money then you wouldn't wouldn't do that and so sarah uh sarah scott who was elizabeth's sister does publish quite a few novels some some of them in translation from french but that's because she does need money so they didn't look down on her for it they tried to help her find publishers and so on but there was there's a little bit of sympathy or pity for somebody who has to do that and then when you get to Frances Burney or you know Jane Austen beyond that they very deliberately Burney aligns herself with Fielding and Richardson who've done a lot to mm-hmm. elevate the novel and almost, I think, deliberately mm. avoids mention of any female novelists before mm-hmm. her. Like, she is really interesting on the make. Her family <laughs> and her, they, they have to place themselves very carefully culturally to maintain and gain cultural prestige and the approval of the Blue Stockings Party. <laughs> so she, uh, you know, she's works really hard to present her novels as elevated works. And she doesn't really, except for Evelina, she doesn't really use the term novel. Like she talks about Camilla as a a series of moral reflections or something. I'm, I'm, the phrase escapes me right now, but she really tries to place it in a category that's something more than, merely a novel but she can still you know Jane Austen Mm -hmm. can go on that little rant in (laughs) Northanger Abbey about you know these are serious works these are uh, you know they show the best and worst of human nature and teach so many lessons (laughs) and and she specifically refers to Bernie novels so Mm -hmm. there's definitely a sense by the time you get to the end of the century that the novel can be a very serious form that it has a literary tradition by now Mm -hmm. And um, the best of the novel is is a really admirable thing. So 
Bernie can position herself in relation to that, I would say. Whereas it wasn't really there so much in the middle of the century, even though you did have Richardson and Fielding starting to create that kind of respectability, I guess, might be the term for the novel. That's so interesting. Another thing that we found while we were digging through all of our WPHP data, we were finding all these things we didn't know about blue stockings in print. Um, And something that we noticed in particular were these inconsistencies around lifetime publications. uh, So stuff printed while the author was alive versus posthumous publications in the WPHP title data in in what we have. So for example, all of the 35 titles we have by Catherine Talbot in the WPHP were published posthumously while only one of Sarah Scott's titles, a 1797 edition of the history of George Ellison, appeared posthumously. Could you speak to the role of posthumous publication in relation to the Blue Stockings and their like cultural prominence? Mm-hmm. I think you're, you're actually telling several stories there, Kate. And, <laughs> no, I, I'm not saying Am confusing I? things. <laughs> no, but it, there's just a few uh, really sort of important phenomena mm-hmm. there. I mean, one of them is mm-hmm. what I've already mentioned is uh, publishing to make money. So I don't, you know, probably a lot of what Sarah Scott published, she wasn't necessarily thinking of as a legacy work or a long-term thing. Her history of George Ellison is a story of a slave owner, right, in in um, in the Caribbean, right, who makes his fortune there and then comes back. He's he's the gentleman of Millennium Hall who discovers Millennium Hall, but this is the sequel to Millennium Hall, which is a utopia of female community, and so he tries to establish that perfect estate and way of life from what he's learned from the women of Millennium Hall. But so George Ellison is, is more of a crossover work, I guess you could say. I mean, it, it's written to appeal to a male and female audience. It mm. addresses issues of slavery and how to treat slaves well. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's one of those ameliorist works. It's not an anti-slavery work, which is not so out of the ordinary for the middle of the century. But so it, it maintains kind of, I guess, a cultural relevance that uh, mm-hmm. many of Sarah Scott's works, however entertaining and well-written they might be, did not. Mm. So in contrast to that, the other story that I see with Catherine Talbot is she was just very reluctant to publish mm. and was known, she had that kind of reputation for conversation and manuscript-based wit in her time, a lot of her work circulated and people would gawk at her and she just hated it <laughs> when she'd meet strangers and they would like just be waiting for the learned lady to say something witty. Like, you know, I mean, you know, the pressure wasn't, she was quite a, a retiring and very self-deprecating person, very mm. hard on herself. And so she just would not publish. And her fellow blue stockings wanted her to publish. So it's not that they were anti. Mm. They felt that the writing she did, she wrote something called Reflections on the Seven Days of the Week. That's probably, you know, one of the main, and then moral essays or something, which was just a gathering of various of her writings. So um, after her rather untimely death. She died, I think she was about 49 or so of cancer. Her good friend, Elizabeth Carter, who's one of the central blue stockings, urged on by Elizabeth Montague again, uh, wanted, wanted, I think, uh, to create a kind of legacy for her and a recognition of, of her, um, what they felt was her wisdom and her, her good sense in how to conduct um, a good life. And so, they published this and and that kind of conduct writing you know how to conduct yourself especially for women was very popular genre at the time right so it it did extremely well and it might have done equally well if published during her lifetime but there's a third story in there this is a rather sad or uh distressing one that i you may see as a pattern in the the wphp uh in general and that is the frequently very short lifespan of women's reputations. So a woman may write a book and have it be, you know, widely praised. Sarah Fielding was a colleague of um, Sarah Scott and, and a, um, patronized by the Blue Stockings and uh, Henry Fielding's sister. And her 
novels were widely respected in her time, but just disappeared. Women, mm. for some reason, mm. their reputations have not stuck. Their, their, their cycle of recognition is just much shorter than men's tends to be. Um, and that's a very complicated phenomenon that we could <laughs> spend the rest of this podcast talking about. Um, I was going to say, because it almost yeah. sounds like the posthumous publication is like, in the case of Catherine Talbot, for example, who didn't want to publish, but her friends were like, your stuff is so good, we want to publish it. So the publication mm-hmm. after her death is almost like the sign of a life well and intellectually lived, if you know what I mean. Like she... Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. was so brilliant during her lifetime that, of course, her stuff was published posthumously. Like, there's this really interesting kind of, like, cause and effect thing going on there that I think feels very, like, almost blue-stocking specific because publication during mm-hmm. your lifetime was kind of such a, like, tenuous, complicated sort mm-hmm. of thing. But no, I find that fascinating. Well, the, <laughs> I, I just the um, critic, Margaret Ezel, who has done a lot of important work on women and manuscript culture, in this period um, has written about the sort of posthumous collection of a woman's works. And um, this is, it's actually a fairly common phenomenon that, and possibly a way of uh, doing rendering homage in a way to that person, but also um, perhaps a way of getting around the fact that it might be looked at as self-promoting to publish during your lifetime. It's hard to say, but it it was not unheard of. It it did occur. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the posthumous publications that we did find in the WPHP as well are um, letters or correspondence. So we wanted to just chat about those a little bit too. So you've already mentioned that letters, um, blue stocking letters, would probably be circulated beyond the people they were addressed to. They'd be copied, they'd be shared. Um, So they're obviously not necessarily all written in a kind of private um, sense to begin with. But um, thinking about the idea of legacies and the way these letters were collected, we noticed that a lot of these letter collections were edited by family members. So, for example, um, Elizabeth Carter's nephew, Montague Pennington, edited her correspondence with Catherine Talbot, as well as her the one side of her correspondence with Elizabeth Montague. We don't have Montague's letters included there. And um, Elizabeth Montague's nephew, Matthew Montague, <laughs> uh, collected and edited a lot of Montague. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, collected and edited um, her letters after her death. So what was the role of sort of family dynamics and family legacy in the printed forms that these correspondences took? And how does that inflect the, the legacy of women's writing as we understand it from this group of writers? Ooh, another excellent double or triple barreled question. Um, <laughs> lots of lots of stories. <laughs> family definitely had a a strong influence an influence that has i think been cursed by many a subsequent Mm. um scholar (laughs) or editor because they were concerned and and i feel that we should be a little bit more charitable about this because i think we we can understand how if a person important to us dies and requests of us that we do certain things with their possessions or their online profile or whatever it is, we want to respect those wishes. And there also was an element of family pride, I guess, or family ambition involved. Elizabeth Montague had risen socially quite a bit through her marriage, had become very, very wealthy and very prominent through her lifetime. So her nephew was concerned not to publish anything that he would have considered a smear on her reputation. And so he wasn't concerned about, you know, how she, her relationship with her husband or any of those kinds of things that we might consider to be the more uh, dirty laundry that you might hide. <laughs> uh, although she had a fairly uh, amicable re- relationship with her husband, but it was, he was more concerned about status. So when Montague was a young woman before her marriage, when she was Elizabeth Robinson, 
she was more or less the companion to the much wealthier and so, more socially elevated Duchess of Portland, mm. who was uh, only about seven years older than her, but, you know, much, much more wealthy. And so she was essentially a, a permanent, semi-permanent house guest and companion, which meant that if the Duchess wanted to write letters, she could write letters. But if the Duchess wanted to talk, she had to talk. She couldn't write letters. Or if the Duchess's husband was suffering from gout, she might have to talk to him and entertain him or read to him. Um, so Matthew Montague actually suppressed a lot of that material. Or he just he made it sound more like an egalitarian friendship than a companionship, which had certain associations with social inferiority and obligation. He also um, raised the uh, elegance of her language. So where she used interesting slang, like really it's sometimes kind of a little bit crude. He cleaned that up oh. or eliminated it. And then he did things like put two letters together and present them as one, you know, with the wrong, but that everyone <laughs> in the 18th century did that. <laughs> So uh, they are important in, in that they have preserved letters for us that we might not have otherwise. But their choices are not necessarily our choices. So we do bump heads with them a little bit. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, too, that he that he was so concerned with like the status of it versus like the like dirty laundry of it. I find that so fascinating mm. because it is it almost speaks to this whole like we've come up in the world. Why remind people? that we that we mm -hmm. that we moved like that in the first place mm -hmm. that's really interesting i mean there was there is a dirty laundry uh, aspect to the montague course sarah scott montague correspondence because sarah married quite unhappily uh george lewis scott who was the the prince of wales one of his preceptors or tutors and it's a murky story that we don't really have sorted out totally mm -hmm. it might have been associated with scott seeming to be a secret jacobite and this is the time of leading up to the and, and including and shortly after the rebellion of 1745 so that was politically very tricky and very right. much the opposite to the position montague was in politically it, also, there were suggestions of possible suggestions of sexual incompatibility or impropriety. And Sarah, a rumor, um, Sarah Scott ended up spending the rest of her, or some years after that, with her close companion, Lady Barbara Montague. And it was, I think, a life partnership. But nothing that was openly scandalous at the time but there does seem to have been a bit of rumor mm -hmm. so what happened was if in some for some reason sarah scott's health was really suffering and the family was really unhappy with this marriage or for whatever reason elizabeth montague really disliked it and at some point her brothers and father went and forcibly seized sarah out of that out of that marriage oh, wow. and and then sarah became very very ill it was it was a it was a terrible time but those letters have just disappeared oh. so we <laughs> know that, yeah yeah oh yeah they didn't accidentally disappear so definitely montague she wasn't going to leave that up to her nephew or anyone else i mean she was going to make sure that certain things just did not survive in the family record right well I love so there's been so much uh, like over the course of this interview we've talked about how the blue stockings were like you know obviously not this like official official club or anything but obviously very well known and there was lots of you know people would refer to them and like the term blue stockings was well used and we noticed like while we were doing all of our data digging in the WPHP that while we have a number of titles by writers affiliated with the blue stockings we only have one title that actually references the group directly using like the term blue stockings and it's this 1827 novel called blue stocking hall popularly thought to be you know by a man but it's been that authorship is now being contested and it said that it was by a woman instead uh, but we were wondering if you've encountered any other titles from the period that reference the group explicitly um because we thought it was fascinating that there was only one in the wphp <laughs> and if not do you think there's a particular 
particular reason for the absence? I mean, one might be partly that initially, anyway, the term was fairly informal. As I said, it would be exchanged in letters, but it wasn't necessarily common usage for mm. what we often call the first generation of the blue stockings, which is kind of the late, very late 50s to, mm-hmm. into the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then we have the second generation where we've got people like Francis Burney and Hannah Moore and so on, and where the whole phenomenon is much more uh, public and talked about. Mm. So you do have quite a lot of poetry and caricature even in contemporary newspapers and magazines. Some of it will be praising Montague. Others will be making fun Mm -hmm. of Montague, satirizing her and her relationships. But they don't necessarily use the term blue stocking. They Mm -hmm. will talk about Mrs. Montague particularly or talk about these assemblies in Hill Street or Portman Square But there is one poem written by Hannah Moore, so second generation, basically. Her name's come up a few times. In 1786, called The Bableau, or Conversation, Mm -hmm. in which she really tries Mm -hmm. to capture what it is that is the essence, I think, of the social, cultural contribution, political contribution of the Blue Stockings. Interesting. She identifies it as conversation. So talks about how it has elevated the moral tone. Like a big thing was that the Blue Stocking assemblies, we always talk about them not playing cards. They, they, They set up this kind of dichotomy where cards represent, I mean, things like gambling and excessive luxury and so on, but also just time wasting and empty pastime. And uh, conversation, on the other hand, is potentially improving, right? Mm. And uh, we learn things, and especially women learn things mm-hmm. through conversation because they didn't have formal educations. And the big thing about the blue stocking assemblies or groups or networks was they were mixed gender. So you could learn, like women could learn from this conversation with men. And they were seen as contributing and as helping men get along, even if they were from different political parties and things. So Hannah Moore tries to capture that in the poem. It's, it's, it's a very positive poem. It's about 450 lines long and um, it was published. So there is, there is material out there, but using the term blue stocking uh, became pejorative in around that time mm-hmm. as well uh, not 100 percent, but but could be used pejoratively and one theory about that is initially the these assemblies were understood to be mixed gender so we haven't talked about them but there were men like mm-hmm. um, david garrick mentioned but also george lord littleton a pol- politician baronet uh, william pulteney lord bath men that were very central to the group at various points and so it was genuinely not seen as such a feminized phenomenon but as it became more entrenched i guess and more Mm -hmm. publicized uh it was more associated with women and interesting so then a blue stocking became a woman and you didn't really use the term for men and then you get the 1790s you get all the (laughs) issues associated with intellectual women like Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Hayes, right? And the French Revolution and the reactionary kind of social movements that came out of that. So as a result, I would say the term really soured, which is is a kind of a disheartening thing, similar to the problem Mm -hmm. of why do women's reputations disappear? If you are a scholar, literary historian with feminist (laughs) interests, you just have to deal Mm -hmm. with this over and over again constantly find it yeah constantly digging and so and sorry this is mildly unrelated but I love I now see in people's like twitter bios or like you know on the internet they'll talk about themselves as blue stockings and it's like this thing they're excited about right they're like I am like I'm a blue stocking I am blue stocking-esque and I love that that's almost this this reclamation of being an intellectual woman right which is which is a fun pushback, right? Because it does it, and it de- because it does definitely like through the nineteenth century become associated with. There, I mean, it's not that there's no reason for <laughs> critique of aspects of blue stocking 
culture yes. much easier in <laughs> retrospect than it was, you know, than to, to um, uh, poke at the, the efforts of these women. I mean, Elizabeth Montague, you herself can be quite, uh, don't quote me to <laughs> all my, you know, various uh, blue stocking colleagues. She was an amazing woman in what she accomplished, but she could be really full of herself and pompous mm. and um once she that element of wanting to maintain her position in society led her to treat others sometimes in ways that were imperious and very interfering with their life choices mm. so that's not really admirable and and she was visible she was so visible she had this huge fabulous new house with these massive assemblies, she might have 200 people there. Wow. And so who's not a target? You know, if you're going to be the rich and famous, you become a target, right, for, for criticism. And that, I guess, tended to overlook what was really innovative and important about how they brought women into the public sphere and into sort of significant exchanges with power so um for our final question you've just kind of acknowledged that it can be very easy to critique people from <laughs> 200 250 years distance <laughs> but also that there can be strong resonances that you feel with these historical figures that we that we study so we just want to close the interview by asking who your favorite blue stocking is and why well, I probably tipped my hand already a little bit about it not being Elizabeth. I think <laughs> <laughs> part of it, like, I, I admire her, you know, and, and mm -hmm. I, she enabled a lot of what other more socially modest and, and um, less well-off women were able to achieve. So I'm not wanting mm -hmm. to discount that at all. But I do, I, I think I started with the Blue Stockings by reading her sister Sarah's correspondence with her and Sarah is just so sharp tongued. Like she's just really <laughs> uh, can be really quite snarky <laughs> about <laughs> people they know, you know, in her letters to Elizabeth, probably she wouldn't have been maybe in other contexts, but so mm -hmm. I, right from the start, I kind of like Sarah's edginess a little bit more than Elizabeth's concern about propriety and mm -hmm. being the noblesse, that right. uh, <laughs> has to oblige everybody but um <laughs> uh it, it, my real favorite is elizabeth carter i think and mm. maybe it's just mm -hmm. you end up with kind of personal affinities to people and i would like to be more like her but she's <laughs> she's just this really down home down to earth woman who lived in this tiny muddy village on the seacoast and she really liked that. She didn't want to spend all her time in London or with the glittering society. She wanted to be in the country, to be with her family. Uh, she never married. She Fortunately, her father totally supported her in that. He taught her Latin and Greek. And he said, it's fine if you just want to live a, a life of independence. But she would, uh, you know, traveling home from London, she'd jump out of the coach at Canterbury and walk the remaining 16 miles home. And Incredible. everybody's like, oh, you know, is that safe? <laughs> yeah. so you, knew that you, might, you might faint by the roadside or something. And she just, whatever, she just did it. Um, so she, I like her, the fact that even though she moved in very privileged society based on her accomplishments she translated uh the stoic philosopher epictetus from the greek for the first mm -hmm. time into english and that was a real kind of blockbuster publication for her and really made uh, an amazing reputation that lasted the rest of her life but she didn't uh you know she seems to have stayed she was perfectly willing to hang out with longtime female friends in deal in canterbury and just talk about silly things and mm -hmm. So I, I, yeah, I like the fact that, and, and maybe I'll take the chance to just mention this famous quote by Samuel Johnson, who was a good friend of hers, who said something about, you know, Elizabeth Carter can make a pudding as well as she can translate 
Greek. And that's really kind of irritated a lot (laughs) for understandable reasons, right? Because it seems to be placing her into this domestic framework, even though she's such an accomplished intellectual. But I think you could look at it more charitably because they were good friends who respected Mm -hmm. each other. And I think maybe what he's saying is what I'm trying to say too, like that she was grounded. Mm -hmm. She was just kind of a real person and seems to have actually deliberately sought out having a kind of balanced mm-hmm. life. Mm. So just not sitting at her desk. All Ooh, the time. What is that like? But she did suffer. <laughs> yeah, We don't know anything about that. Right. So yeah, I think it, that's, that's yeah. a good example of a model that actually in some ways still kind of speaks to us, right. The need to, to, um, have other be about other things she did suffer f- badly from migraines and i don't envy her that but otherwise i i like her yeah so good so good we love we love elizabeth carter was there anything else that you'd like to chat about betty that we didn't get to touch on during our questions at all oh well, they've been great questions it's been wonderful to to talk about this maybe one thing that i I haven't really thought about in preparation, but I feel like maybe I haven't done justice to, I alluded to it just in in sort of two answers back, but what the actual influence of the blue stockings might have been since some of this, you know, conversation is ephemeral, even letter writing. We have 8,000, more than 8,000 of letters between Elizabeth Montague and her correspondence. So there's a tremendous legacy there in terms of insight into 18th century culture and blue stocking thinking and so on. But they were important in their time. They did really push forward a kind of egalitarian social uh, framework, which to be fair, it did not include poor, the laboring poor, they were quite concerned that if Elizabeth Montague patronized a shoemaker poet, she would be quite concerned that he didn't become too proud and too ambitious. Hannah Moore had an episode like that with Anne Yearsley as well, which became uh, quite notoriously public. But that aside, they did create these for their time, quite egalitarian social interactions, social spaces, I guess would be a good term to use. And they advocated for women's education in a way, and they proved, they showed, demonstrated women's capacity in a way that really, I think, benefited a later generation of women like Mary Wollstonecraft, even though she had lots of quarrels with them. So, uh, not literal quarrels, but bones to pick with them. So, they were, they were significant in their time. And I think they made, they did things that were radical. They did things like, my, my colleague Elizabeth Eager talks about Elizabeth Montague had this famous feather room where she collected from all kinds of female friends. She collected all these feathers and made these huge, like, wall hangings and things. Wow. Yeah, it was... um, But she took something that women did do these little feather screens for fireplaces and sort of decorative arts, Mm -hmm. but she did everything in a huge, a big scale, you know? (laughs) So she took these uh, very feminized uh, and domesticated arts and turned them into sort of public phenomena, things that people wanted to come and see and spaces in which literally opposition politicians could meet and Persians and probably Phyllis Wheatley at some point and people from uh, all different walks of life were able to... uh, find an open door there. So I think it's a significant contribution. Oh, yeah. Even though there are are aspects of it that might sometimes make us feel uncomfortable or 
that we might criticize. Oh, marvelous. Thank you so much for joining us today, Betty. It has been an absolutely wonderful time being able to sit and chat with you about this. Well, it's been my pleasure. I just love to talk blue stockings and thank you for giving me the opportunity. As our conversation with Betty indicated, there were more avenues than just print for intellectual women like those involved with the Blue Stocking Circle to circulate and engage with ideas. And print wasn't necessarily the most important of them. However, print can be an important metric for understanding the impact of women's writing and the relationships that shaped it to subsequent readers. As Betty noted, paratexts, especially dedications and subscription lists, are helpful for discovering connections between individuals, particularly those of informal groups like the Blue Stockings, where no roster or official list of members exists. Paratexts can provide us with evidence of specific kinds of relationships, too. Relationships of patronage, for example, can be found in introductions or dedications. As Betty mentioned, Hester Chapone's dedication to Elizabeth Montague is a result of Montague's patronage and encouragement of Chapone's writing. They can also indicate contact between particular people. Elizabeth Carter's poems was dedicated to the Earl of Bath, who she knew personally. We don't have fields for these kinds of metadata in the WPHP, but when dedications appear in titles, those do get captured and they are thus searchable. When you search for dedicated in the title field, 201 results come up. Searching for names in the title field can also yield results. Frances Boscawen, who didn't publish anything, appears in the WPHP title search because she had a poem dedicated to her by Hannah Moore, Sensibility, a Poetical Epistle to the Honorable Mrs. Boscawen by Miss H. Moore, published in 1785. Print here, despite Boscawen's lack of publication, makes searchable the connection between these two blue-stocking women. But as our discussion of Betty's discovery of Sarah Wilmot's poetry shows, being an active member of a coterie was no guarantee of being remembered. Unlike Boscowan, Wilmot was not at the heart of a coterie network, even though she was integrated into it, and her poetry remained in manuscript, unknown until very recently. However, even if Wilmot's poetry had appeared in print, there was no guarantee that it would have been widely read or remembered. The issue of women's comparatively brief shelf lives ran through our conversation, exemplified by Queen of the Blues Elizabeth Montague's sister, Sarah Scott, whose novels, other than the consistently topical Sir George Ellison, ceased to be reprinted at all after the 1770s. Despite Scott's very close relationship to one of the core blue stockings, her reputation was not necessarily long-lived either. And while we were completing this episode, another example of how even a combination of publication and savvy networking doesn't guarantee longevity actually arose when a comment left on the WPHP by Emily Spoonogle directed us to her recent research on the attribution of a pamphlet of poetry from 1798 titled Mary the Osier Peeler. Spoonogle was able to attribute this work to Mary Morgan, a writer best known for her successful 1795 travel memoir, A Tour to Milford Haven in the year 1791. As Spoonogle points out, by not including her name on the title page of Mary the Osier Peeler, Morgan intentionally chooses not to advance authorship or even leverage this relative success of her previously published book as imprimatur for the Osier poem. While Morgan's embeddedness in blue stocking networks likely did play a role in allowing Spoonogle to identify her as the author of this pamphlet, for over 200 years after its publication, it remained unidentified. Even within a single author's of, both longevity and recovery can be uneven, determined by paratextual information as much as archival records and personal correspondence and connections. As a project, the WPHP relies heavily on the work of other scholars to establish authorship. The intensive work of author attribution is something that our team just doesn't have the time or the resources for. If we pursued every rabbit hole that opened up before us, we'd never get anywhere. In the letter that we opened this episode with, from Elizabeth Carter to Catherine Talbot, she mentions a Mrs. Richardson in connection to the printing of her work. We did, of course, with our WPHP hats on, want to know more, but our initial searches in the WPHP and sources like the British Book Trade Index brought up dozens of Mrs. Richardson's involved in the London book trades. So which Mrs. Richardson was this? Did she ultimately print Carter's poems? 
The sources we usually rely on didn't provide an immediate answer, in part because the digitized versions of Carter's poems we have access to don't include a colophon. More detailed research into Carter's publishing networks could yield results, but that's a level of research we typically don't have time to undertake. As with many of the questions we asked Betty today, there is not one simple answer, but rather multiple overlapping stories that interact with larger historical forces. These determine which historical figures we can easily find out more about, as well as who we even find out about in the first place. While print publication increases the odds of a text's survival and therefore makes the people who produced it more likely to be identified, it is no guarantee of longevity. However, the networked nature of print, much like the networked nature of the blue stockings, provides pathways for us to identify new nodes, whether books, authors, printers, publishers, patrons, or protégés. the ninth episode of the WPHP Monthly Mercury and the penultimate episode of season one. We will be returning on March 17th to finish the season with a celebration of Women's History Month. If you're interested in learning more about what we discussed today, we've compiled a list of suggestions for further readings and links to some relevant entries in the WPHP in a blog post that you can find at womensprinthistoryproject.com. Ultimate. <laughs> <In> ultimate. <laughs>